Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, you can join us on day 260. 260. We're almost done with the year. And this week... We wrap up the Old Testament. That, that, this is it. That's crazy to think about. But before we get there, I also want to invite you to send us questions that you may have. Uh, whether the Bible-based questions, maybe it's context or historical context around biblical times. We would love to take time every every week as much as we can at the end of our podcast to answer those questions. There's three ways to send them to us. One is sending it via email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line that it's a podcast question, or you can direct message us on social media via Facebook or Instagram. Our handles are the Grove CH. Uh, we are the Grove Church, as Evan has already said, in Washington State. So you can DM us there as well, and we uh, will take time as much as we can. So look forward to answering your questions. Yeah. Well, like Aaron said, we are wrapping up the Old Testament today. So I'm talking about most of the history books. Uh, we'll be I'll be doing the I'll be wrapping up Ezra and doing most of Nehemiah, and then Aaron's going to take the last bit of Nehemiah, and then also the the last of the prophets. Yeah. So. And one little ditty in Chronicles. Oh, that's yeah. I guess that's true. Is that the, I'm assuming that's the last of the genealogies. It. Yep. Is it's in Chronicles. Wow, what a what well, a time. It's not even really a genealogy, right? It's a more of like it's just a list. It's like a census list. Oh, but anyways, is it we'll get one? there. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. No spoilers. Uh, quick addendum to last week. <laughs> so, well, I guess two we're not th- there yet. Well, that's true. One thing I'll save for when we get to when we get to Joel. Uh, but the other one I was going to say is I said uh, that Israel was ruled over by the by the. Um, Sorry, sorry. I said, I said Egypt was ruled over by the Seleucids. Not true. They're ruled over by the Ptolemies. Liar. I know, and and I know, and I'm not smart enough to pick up on that. And so all three of you who are interested, <laughs> there's in probably five. The Greek Empire after Alexander the Great were like, what an idiot saying the Seleucids ruled Egypt. So that's my bad, everybody. That's my bad. Well, if you give us another chance, maybe you swore off the podcast because of that. Hopefully, you're listening one more time to give us a yeah. chance so you can hear the the repentance. Come back. back. Come back. Please come back. We'll talk more about Alexander the Great uh, next week. Aaron brought up a good point, mm. so we're gonna. Before we jump in, so we're going to start the Gospels next week. Before we jump in, we'll Bro, do a quick do, segment. Now you're doing spoilers, dude. That's true. Like we're going to start off with 400 seconds of silence, seconds of silence, because <laughs> it's 400 years of silence. No, I'm just kidding. We are going to talk about the intertestamental period, though, like yeah. what happened between Malachi or Joel, as the case may be, and Matthew. So, but or that's, Mark. That's for next. Well, yeah, it's true. All right, <laughs> Ezra, chapter nine. We're going to we go. We'll get into the actual Bible stuff that we're. Can talking you tell about we're excited week. about reading in the new, getting in the New Testament? It has been a journey through the Old Testament, and it's kind of slogged down a bit. So it's picked up a bit in the end here, but I'm glad we're man, back. It was, in the, it was rough. Yeah, I'm glad we're back in the history book. The prophetic books can be rough when you're just in them for so long because I, I find them to be the hardest ones to read in in the Bible, other than the law. The law is also its own thing. Uh, so it is nice to be back in history. But then it's going to be cool to spend some time just straight up in the Gospels. That's what we're doing all week. It, it'll be nice. All right. So Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is how we're finishing it up. Uh, after his religious reforms that we talked about last week, Ezra is told about the issue of intermarriage that had been going on in Israel. Remember, the people of Israel were not to intermarry with faiths around them. Uh, and this is not necessarily a racial command. This is a more, It's a faith command, right? So we see in the book of Ruth that there's not an issue 
with God, with the fact that Ruth is an Edomite because she worships she worships Yahweh alone. So it's it's not necessarily this idea of no one who is not ethnically Jewish. It's very much the idea of dude, don't make the same mistake Solomon and everyone else made, where you marry someone and then you're like, oh yeah, just bring your gods over. It'll be fun. So we're putting we're putting it into that. Uh, when the extent of the problem is made apparent, Ezra tears his clothes and repents before God on behalf of the people. After recapping the sins of, sins of Israel's past, he says this. And so this is Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is, is a land of Land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance for your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds for, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are, le- we are left a remnant that has escaped, as is as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So Ezra brings, it's, he's, he repents for the sins of his people. And the the expectation is going to be that all of Israel is going to repent for this. Um, Ezra, in fact, he brings all of the people in Jerusalem, and we're told that it's in the pouring rain, and he commands them. So you can kind of picture like this is a very dramatic scene where he's commanding them to put away or to send away their foreign wives and children. And it, it talks about how it, it's pouring down rain and some of the people are getting uncomfortable because of that. And then we're given a list of the people who did as they were commanded. So that's the end of – the end of Ezra is that. It's just kind of the list of what happened. Um, a little a little controversial, this command of Ezra, of Ezra because – I don't know if you're going to hit on this in Malachi. Are you hitting on the divorce thing in Malachi or no? Not, but, a, not I'm not hitting it heavy. Okay. So basically Malachi talks about how they're commanded not to divorce uh, their wives and then in Ezra, they're commanded to. So you can interpret this as Malachi is just referring to Jewish wives, not to uh, the foreign wives that they have. I kind of tend to think of it as the other way. I think Ezra might have overstepped a little bit here where the idea would be um, to not worship the other gods. But I'm not sure if it was the right thing to essentially send break apart the families and send them away. But who knows? I'm also like in the modern West. So it's just a very different culture. So it's hard to look at it through that lens. But yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of tension there and. In- as far as culturally, it's hard to it's hard to put ourselves in there, and so I, I agree. It's kind of hard to to determine that, and so. Mm-hmm. And Ezra also just ends in a weird spot, and I guess when we because we're getting, so true, yeah, we're getting into Nehemiah, so this is an important thing to state. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book, and so Ezra, when you're separating them, Ezra just ends on, and then they all, and here's the list of the people who put away their wives. Nehemiah, like you know what I mean. So it, it, it originally, this is it was considered one story. Obviously, it's taking point of views from different characters, but uh, it wouldn't have like it's not like the end of one book goes into the other. It's really essentially supposed to be one book. So, but Nehemiah, let's get into that one. Uh, and this is our final Old Testament history book. Originally, this book was like I just said this, but originally this book was always paired with Ezra and would have been considered one text. It covers the political leadership of Nehemiah, who was a peer of Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah are doing their ministry at the same time. 
Uh, Nehemiah comes in a little bit later. So Ezra was active before Nehemiah came over. And then where Ezra is a spiritual leader of the people of Israel, Nehemiah is a political leader of the people of Israel. Uh, The book opens by introducing us to Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer, who was the cupbearer to the king, uh, King Artaxerxes of Persia, who would have been the son of Ahasuerus or Xerxes from the book of Esther, most likely not Esther's son. There's no record historically that Artaxerxes was Jewish or had any Jewish heritage. So this is probably, he probably knew Esther, not probably, he knew Esther certainly, uh, but was probably not her son. Uh, let me, sorry, where am I at my notes here? Here we go. Uh, Nehemiah is given this given news of the state of Jerusalem. And he's told that the walls are in shambles and that the people live in shame because of this. This is one of those things that's hard for us to kind of grasp in the, in the modern world because where we live, we don't have walls unless you're like on the borders, I guess. But other than that, like we don't, we don't have walls around our cities. We don't have walls around our towns. We live in a town called Marysville. We're not afraid that Arlington is going to come over and attack us. And for those of you who don't live here, Arlington is just like the next town north. So, but back in the day, walls were incredibly important. If you didn't have walls or if your walls were in disrepair, you were open to raids. People could come in. They would write in, take wealth. They could kill some people. And before you could even muster defense, they would be out is one of those things that can happen. If another army comes through all of a sudden you can't even do a siege. The soldiers are just going to pour into the city and destroy everything. It, and there's there's a lot of safety issues that come up with not having a wall. Jerusalem, and I think sometimes we we write this as Jerusalem had no walls. This, that's not true. Jerusalem had walls. And that's part of why it was able to be constructed so quickly because they're not building up an entire wall around the city of Jerusalem, but there's a ton of gaps is what's happening. So the wall is essentially pointless. So Nehemiah wants to go over and he wants to repair these walls. When Nehemiah hears the word or the news that the, the people of Jerusalem don't have walls and they're living in shame, he tears his robe and he prays. His prayer notably follows this structure. It begins with praising God for his glory and then a confession of the sins of Nehemiah's ancestors, a reminder of the covenant that they have with God, and then a plea for God's mercy. Remember that structure because it's going to come back up in a little bit. So in chapter two, Nehemiah is before Artaxerxes and the king notices that Nehemiah is feeling low. Artaxerxes is a pretty good guy, which most of the Persian kings are pretty good guy. Even Xerxes, you know, other than sending away Vashti, he, he, he redeems himself a he, little bit. He was a drunken idiot. You know, what, one thing, it, it, this, it feels like how when people are doing evil things, they'll say like, well, at least I'm not Hitler. Like with Artaxerxes, with Xerxes, it's like, you know, he did some bad things, but at least he didn't commit a genocide, you know? Like that's, it's a low bar, but Xerxes passes the bar. <laughs> so way to go, bud. Um, so anyway, sorry, Artaxerxes notices that Nehemiah is feeling pretty low. He asks what's wrong. And then this goes down. So this is Nehemiah chapter two, verses two through six. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting behind him, or beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. The queen thing is an interesting aside. I wonder if this is Esther, who would have been one of the queen. Po- I, I, yeah, I wonder the same thing. And I don't know, I don't know enough about the way the Persian royal court worked, but I don't know if you would still be considered a queen mother if you're not the queen, the mother of the current king. But 
I don't know. So I don't know if she would still have a rank of queen or not. This also could be his wife who's in for all of us who are married. We know that sometimes we're not sure what decision to make when we glance over at our wives and they're just like, come on, like, you know, the right thing to do here. It's like, oh, okay. Sometimes that's like most of my life. You're right. (laughs) There you go. But either way, we're told that the queen is there. the, The inference is kind of that Artaxerxes looks over at the queen and then looks back at Nehemiah and then gives the message. So that's otherwise, you know, why are you including that whole, that whole bit in there? But yeah, Artaxerxes' reply is, Okay, well, when are you going to be back? So, which is a really, it's, it's, we, it's kind of easy to miss when we're reading it, but essentially what he's saying is, okay, yeah, go do it. Just, I just want you back. So don't stay over there forever. Just let me know. And then you're, and then you're good to go. Uh, Nehemiah also requests letters for safe passage. This is very important when you're traveling, especially in an ancient empire where you're going through, like we don't, empires back then are not the way that we think of nations today. Whereas, you know, when we're, if we travel from Washington to Oklahoma and we're driving through a bunch of states, we're not worried about those different states attacking us. An ancient empire is not a coherent nation the way we think about it. It's a bunch of smaller kingdoms who are paying fealty uh, and paying taxes to an emperor who is over everything. But they, they, there's very much infighting going on. So it's important to have letters from the king giving you safe passage through all of this. Uh, we're also introduced to a couple of real doorknobs. <laughs> and this is uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. They come up a lot in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, they hear about this new wall and they're pretty peeved. We're not told why yet. So, and I guess we're never told like explicitly why, but we can take some guesses. Uh, we're also told that Sanballat is the governor of the region and that Tobiah is an uh, is an Ammonite leader. So the ancient kingdom that is an enemy of Israel, Ammon. Nehemiah makes it to Jerusalem and he inspects the walls and they live up to the, the anti-hype. So he heard they were bad and they are just as bad as he heard. He rallies the people, telling them that the hand of God is God is upon him for his work. And then the, the people listen. They get back to the work. I love the post-exilic period because, again, it's like Haggai, hey, get back to building the temple. And the people listen. Nehemiah comes over. He's like, hey, we need to get back to building these walls or we need to build these walls. And the people are like, no, that's a good idea. Good point. So they go to it. Uh, chapter three gives us a very detailed list of the families who were in charge of building the different sections of the walls. Uh, they're, they're called gates. So essentially you would build the idea being that you would build the walls around these gates. I love the names. So we get the fish gate, the gate of Yashana, the valley gate, the dung gate. That's the one. I feel like that would be the one that I would get put in charge of with my luck. Just you get the dung gate, uh, the fountain gate and the horse gate. So there you go. Yeah, and there's no special uniqueness in that. They literally are just descriptive gates. That's what they are. Yeah, I like that. So. They're fun names. I, I wish. No, that... totally. But like, it's funny because sometimes we, well, there's got to be like a, a reason for that. No, like the fish gate was because the, there was a reason they brought fish in. Like there's, they are very practical in the names. The yep. dung gate, that was where they removed feces and 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 they had the sewage draining and all that. Just. I just wish that the Bible translators used poop instead of dung. So they just called the poop gate. That would have been great. Uh, so chapter four shows uh, Sanballat. You should write your own version. There you I'm just go. kidding. Don't do that. Just change that one word. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah trying to actually put a stop to everything. The plan was to raid the city and cause confusion before the walls were fully patched up. However, the people of Jerusalem pray to God for protection and Nehemiah stations soldiers in the weak points of the wall. So Sanballat and Tobiah are essentially, they're trying to, like we said, cause confusion. They're trying to stop this before it even gets going. And Nehemiah, he's a little, he's, you know, he's a smart cookie. And I, you know, I think sometimes we think of Cupbearer as, yeah, the guy just brought wine to the king. Like, no, he's a very high up servant yeah. to the king. So Nehemiah is very intelligent and also probably independently wealthy yep. because so don't think of Nehemiah as just he's a very trusted guy. advisor too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's essentially, he's not a noble, but he's, he's very similar to that idea. I suppose he would have been high up in the court. Yep. All right. Uh, the enemies of Jerusalem get frustrated and they don't even seem to attack because like, oh, there's going to be resistance. 
Let's go, boys. Take our spears and go home. Uh, The work on the wall resumes, and Nehemiah commands that the whole workforce must sleep inside of the wall for safety. And so this is, if you think of castles in the medieval age where not everyone lived in the castle, you would live outside of it, but when an army would come... Everyone would go inside of the castle for, for protection. This is the way the walls of cities work. Not everyone would live inside of the walls of the city, but the walls were there so that in times of trouble, you could move inside. Nehemiah commands that all of the workers, hey, you guys can't live outside the walls right now because he doesn't want them to get picked off by raiders. So they're all sleeping inside of the city where it's much easier to protect them. Uh, in chapter five, Nehemiah hears about the oppression of the poor going on, and he's pretty peeved. So we get this in verses six through 13. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Uh, even the worst, even like the the, the usurers are like, they, Nehemiah tells them, hey, stop this. And they reply, yeah, you're right. Sorry. I, I love that he just says, we have made an effort to bring back all of our brothers who have been sold into slavery, and yet you're taking financial advantage of them when they get back and they're they just look at they just look down in shame and won't yep. even answer Nehemiah. So good job, Nehemiah. Way to way to take charge. Uh, and then to wrap up chapter five, Nehemiah makes it clear that he is not just telling the people to do this. Uh, he relaxes the taxes levied by his predecessors and he feeds his own court. He feeds his court on his own dime. So essentially when people come in and they visit, Nehemiah is himself providing the meal so that he's not having to take that money from the people in Jerusalem in order to support it. So Nehemiah, all around good guy. And this is this is really important because God's pe- one of the commands that God's people ignored a ton in ancient Israel is stop taking financial advantage of people, which I guess is a, it's a problem today, right? Like you can turn on, uh, I won't n- name the networks, but you can turn on a lot of the networks at night and all of a sudden you just find a bunch of people trying to take advantage of particularly the elderly because they're jerks, but it is what it is. Uh, in case you thought Sanballat and Tob- Tobiah were done, chapter six lets us know that they are up to their old tricks. Nehemiah gets a message from Sanballat inviting him to come over for a meeting, but Nehemiah is no dummy. So basically, yeah, he gets a letter from an enemy saying, hey, why don't you come over here to this secluded place and we'll we'll talk it out. And Nehemiah's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So, because I'm not an idiot. Uh, next, they accuse Nehemiah of wanting to rebel against Persia and claim that the, and claim the crown of Judah, uh, which gets brushed off. However, Nehemiah does meet with them to shut it down. While he's there, they hire someone to try and scare Nehemiah into thinking that he's about to be assassinated. So, like I said, a couple of real doorknobs, these guys, but they're not really facing Nehemiah. They're just trying to, I mean, they're trying to, and then Nehemiah is shutting it down every step of the way. And I, I think it's it's kind of hinted that 
Artaxerxes knows Nehemiah well enough to know that this isn't going to happen. Like Nehemiah does not seem concerned about the idea that Artaxerxes is going to think that he's trying to overthrow his rule in in Judah. So Nehemiah and the, and the king are tight. At least that's how that's how I kind of imply it. That's not explicitly stated necessarily. Uh, finally, in the end of chapter six, the wall is finished. The city is described as being very large, but now it needs houses to keep all the people inside because they built the walls, but the city is still, remember, the city was destroyed 70 years prior. So they've they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt some of the houses. They've rebuilt the wall, but they need to keep going to make the city, you know, back to where, I mean, former glory is probably a little bit strong, but at least to be something that they can be proud of and live in. Uh, the rest of chapter seven is a nice listing of the returned exiles and the gifts that they brought to the city. So just, again, just in case you think this is myth, the recording, like here's all the families that came back. In chapter eight, we check back in with Ezra. We haven't seen him in a little bit. Uh, we get another covenant renewal and Ezra reads the whole law to the, all of the people. So they gather up all of Jerusalem and Ezra straight up just reads the entire law, which would be the first five books of the Bible. And you think your church gathering is long. Yeah, it's true. Uh, the people were understandably overcome with emotion because they're seeing how they have fallen short. They're seeing the law that they're not keeping. I, Nehemiah does something really unique in this moment, which I, I just thought was interesting. And it grabbed me for the first time this year. You know, we've read through Nehemiah however many times, but I, it really stuck out to me. So this is verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught all the people, uh, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And when all of the people... Sorry, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the people are hearing the law and they're saying, wow, we don't do this. We don't do this. We've broken this law. We don't keep this feast. And they're overcome with emotion and they're weeping because of what they've done. And Nehemiah and, and Ezra essentially shut it down. It's like, nope, this is a new day. We're restarting. You're not supposed to be weeping. Go out, rejoice, be merry. If anyone doesn't have the ability to, re- to, be, to make merry, give them food, give them wine. We're celebrating today. So it, it is kind of, it's an issue because most of the Old Testament, you would not have a problem with that. You would. Yeah, true. Like, yeah, everyone weep. We, we should be very sorry for what we've done. And we're going to start tomorrow doing better. This one is essentially saying, hey, th- I, this is reading a lot into it, obviously, but almost in the sense of the past is the past. We're restarting and we're celebrating the fact that we're restarting today. So kind of a cool moment. Uh, as chapter eight continues, we see the Feast of the Booths, which is celebrated for the first time since the days of Joshua. Uh, and so it reminds me of, remember listeners a few weeks ago, not a few weeks ago, I guess it's like over a month ago now, but we talked about in Josiah, Josiah does a corporate Passover for the first time recorded since Joshua, but yeah. we're told it's the first time since the days of the judges. So it, it, at least a very long time. So it is interesting that Josiah didn't do the Feast of the Booths. I mean, maybe it's because <clears throat> the, the Feast of the Booths involves building small shelters outside of the city and living there as a reminder of the the time in the wilderness. So maybe they don't do that because the armies of Babylon and are, uh, was it a Syria? No, Babylon at the time. Yeah, we're right around. So maybe they're just, Josiah's like, hey guys, we need to not do this. But either way, it's the first time that it's done. And so really cool, really cool moment there. And then finally, in chapter nine, we see the covenant renewal ceremony, and it follows this structure, praising God for his glory 
and then a confession of the sins of Israel's ancestors, which is really detailed. It's, it's much more detailed than the prayer at the beginning. Uh, a reminder of the covenant that the people are under, and then a plea for God's mercy. So I just thought it was really interesting how Nehemiah's first reaction is a prayer in this structure. And then when the, all of the people are renewing their covenant with God, it follows that exact structure as well. So kind of cool. And then finally, for my readings today, chapter 10 records those who signed the covenant and reminds the people of their obligation to follow the law. So we get uh, the signet ring or the, the, the signatures that are under the signet ring of this covenant renewal. And then there's just kind of a recap of what they're committing to do. The, and we can kind of, if you're reading through chapter 10, you can kind of imply or infer that the laws that are being specified here are probably the ones that they've been doing a bad job following. And so they're re-upping their commitment to, no, we're going to follow the law. This is exactly what we're doing. So cool moments. Yeah. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're, they're good books. They're like, all right. When I say good, I mean, they're uplifting books. You know, we're not, we're out of the days of, Hey, yeah. every, everyone's going to die. Jerusalem's going to fall. You're all going to be cannibals. Like we're, we're into some encouraging texts of the old Testament and you know, I'm, I'm here for it. And the gospels are going to be great. You know, other than that whole crucifixion thing. But even then, right after that, we get the resurrection. So it's fine. We won't even, you know, we won't even be in there for too long. Uh, so before we jump into the next section of our readings, I did want to take a moment to remind everyone to leave us a five-star review if you haven't done so yet, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are the two platforms that, you know, the, it really helps us out when you leave a five-star review, gets the gets it out there to more people. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on air and give you a shout out just because, you know, that's the kind of host that we are. We like to give our listeners a shout out. Yep. So Aaron... Take us through the rest of Nehemiah. Well, the rest of the Old Testament, let's just be honest. That's true. So, what a moment. Yeah, right? So uh, Nehemiah will continue in chapter 11 here. It details the resettling of the city, uh, where in essence, the leaders of Jerusalem will uh, already be staying. They're already, because they're the leaders, they stay in the city of Jerusalem. And then there's like this moment where they cast lots, uh, and they one out of 10, in essence, out of a, t- a group of 10 people, they select one person that will stay in the city itself while the other people, the remainder of the people stay outside in their town, outside the city of Jerusalem in their towns. Uh, and so that's the end of chapter 11. We'll find that that's kind of um, what plays out there. Chapter 12, we get, it continues the list of who's who, who's staying where, who's going where. Um, and then we'll shift into the, the last portion of Chronicles in chapter 9, 1 through 34. Uh, and we see this, just to open it up, it'll kind of tell us exactly what this list is. Uh, and it's verses one and two, it says, all Israel was registered in the genealogies um, genealogies uh, that are written in the book of the kings of Israel, but Judah was exiled to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. The first to live in their towns on their own property, again, were the Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. So this is the group of people that is staying in the city of Jerusalem. This is the group of people that went back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to resettle and repopulate it. And then it continues in First Chronicles chapter 9. The list then is uh, developed and shown um, as far as who's that, that, like I said, the list of who's who is what is played out there. We will then shift back into Nehemiah chapter 12, starting in verse 27, where we'll find there's this moment of dedication of the wall where uh, Nehemiah gathers the people that are there and he, he brings them up to the top of the wall and then goes two different directions uh, that in essence ushers in a celebratory uh, dedication of the wall. It's a recognition of God's faithfulness and it's this procession that happens and goes one way towards the dung gate and then one way away from the dung gate, uh, which is funny that that's like the, the 
hinge point, so to speak, of where they, they you can say the go poop. to and from. You can no, say it's the not poop, poop bro. It's dung. It says in the Bible, <laughs> dung. Um, so that's what the rest of chapter twenty or 12 will tell us, uh, the dedication of the wall. And then it also t- uh, provides direction and even the response of God's people in providing for the Levites in the ministry that they are operating in within the temple, uh, where they bring food for the storerooms and they bring... Um, uh, what's needed. And so we shift into chapter 13, which is the end of the book. Uh, and in this chapter, we actually find the the reality going back to Nehemiah getting permission to leave from Artaxerxes. He actually heads back to Artaxerxes. Um, and in this, I kind of kind of uh, explain it this way, that it details the sideways-ness, sideways-ness of Eliashab, who's the priest, uh, where Eliashab, I think, is the actual way to say it, uh, where he actually is leading and compromising uh, the commitment that was made to remain faithful to God and his people. Uh, and it refers back to this intermarrying moment where they participate in idol worship because they are intermixing and intermarrying. Uh, and we get this moment where uh, Nehemiah says, I was away um, and because the king called me back because I went back to the king. And then sometime later, he found out that Eliashib had created space for Tobiah to uh, live in the temple courts. Now, Tobiah was not one of God's people. He was not one of the ones that was supposed to stay in the city of Jerusalem. And so there's already this compromise and uh, not intermarrying, but intermingling of foreigners. And there is a, uh, in essence, a punishment, a a curse and a wrath being poured out against God's people because of that. Uh, And so when Nehemiah comes back uh, sometime later is what the, the text says, he finds us out. He removes Tobiah and all of his belongings. He has the temple courtrooms purified uh, and then uh, reestablishes the commitment, rebukes Eliashib. Uh, and then he makes this final petition in, to end the book of chapter 13. And it's a pretty hefty section, verses 14 to 31. And I'm going to read it uh, on air because Ooh. this is this is a, a Nehemiah at the end of the work that he's done. At the end, he goes away to fulfill uh, from Babylon. He goes away from Babylon to do the work uh, that God is calling him to, to rebuild the walls. And then he comes back to Artaxerxes to serve as he's, as he's supposed to serve in his position as cupbearer. And then he goes back to Jerusalem to then find that there is compromise already, re-purifies the room. And then he says this, and this is kind of his last, these are his last words that are recorded, obviously, and it ends the book of Nehemiah, but it says this, starting in verse 14, it says, remember me for this, my God. And what he's talking about is the uh, not just his the work that he's done, but he's really referring to uh, removing of Tobiah and repurifying the temple courts uh, for the work of the Lord and to store the provisions needed for the Levites. Um, he says, remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of the faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses, wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also binging, bringing in, not binging, bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine grapes and figs. All kinds of goods were brought, being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling the food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and had said to them, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on the city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
When shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not open until after the Sabbath. I posted the same, some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. And after that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves, to guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember for me, remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them and cursed them, beat some of their men and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or to take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon and Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by God and God made him king over all Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you telling all this terrible, doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiadias, the son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to the Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for donation of wood and appointed the times or appointed times. Sorry, I also arranged for donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. And it's this last hurrah and this last petition to God saying, Lord, I have done everything I can for the better of your people to honor you and to honor your temple and your city. Uh, and you see the, even the essence, the reform he had to bring in that short time he was away, a handful of years or however long, there was no real clarity on how long he was away. But when he comes back, he sees that the people of God have already stepped aside and started doing things that were bringing compromise, intermarrying, bringing in uh, foreigners and beginning to compromise, even forgoing the Sabbath day. And so I think it's a pretty remarkable ending because he draws everyone back to the original covenant and the original compromise or converse, the original con uh, commitment that they were called to do. Uh, and he asks God to remember him and bring favor to him. And that's where Nehemiah ends. Uh, and it's kind of a, a bow on Nehemiah's ministry where he's able to see reform. Um, and then we shift into Malachi uh, and then followed by Joel. And these are the two uh, last books of the Old Testament that we're going to read in this year period. Oh, man. Um, now, I say that with a caveat because I don't know entirely what the New Testament holds for us uh, because we said there was no Psalms and we found a Psalm in the exile. So all of that to say there might be, but I don't think there is because it's chronological. All of, Anyways. But Malachi is a small book, and I love the way that the CSB Study Bible had put it. It says, this is a small book that will capture the essential message of the Old Testament and shows the nature of, of God and our relationship and our responsibility to him and to others in the covenant community. Uh, I just thought it was a beautiful way to say that because that's what Malachi is going to show us. Um, and in cont contextually, what's going on right here is actually the excitement of Haggai and Zechariah have worn off a bit. And you'll see Malachi is going to offer messages of hope, followed by judgment and a call to repent. Um, and so they've they've reestablished commitment, they've reestablished the covenant, but you've seen kind of this uh, 
the honeymoon phase is wearing off, which is what Nehemiah had had to address and deal with was, okay, cool, we're back. We're reestablishing our people. Hey, those people are cool. And I know they're not God's people, but let's let's have community with them. Let's bring them into the city of God. And that's what Nehemiah was, was going against and kind of fighting against because God was looking to establish and reestablish his people again uh, because they're supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. We then shift into chapter one in Malachi, where is the, the, the excitement of all of that God has been doing and rebuilding the walls is wearing off. And there's some... Uh, messages of hope for sure, but also rebuke. And I do like the way that it it, it presents. It's almost like this, um, this trial-ish judgment conversation of, hey, you have done this, but you say, how have we done this? Let me tell you. Uh, and so that's kind of the rhythm and the feel of what Malachi is. Um, so we start in chapter one, verses one through five, I'm going to read. Uh, but it says this, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have I, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will we we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says they they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes have, will see this, and you yourselves will say the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. And so God in this moment is reminding them of how much he loves them. He preferred Jacob over Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn. He was given, he, he had the birthright, and he ended up selling. We know if you remember back to that long ago, earlier in the year, we know Esau sold his birthright. We know Jacob got the, fir- the blessing of the firstborn uh, when he deceived his father. Uh, and so that we know these things are played out, but God is reminding his people, hey, I love you. Uh, and in the midst of that, he's also providing rebuke and correction uh, and explaining why there's a rebuke. And that's what chapter one continues with. It continues with this rebuke of the priests because they're disobeying God. And in essence, he, they're asking, well, how have we disobeyed you? And he calls them out saying, you, you've not held the standards I've asked you to hold and sacrifices that you are responsible for. Uh, and he carries this this tension where they have not uh, maintained the high standard of the animals that are being brought to sacrifice. They've not maintained the high standard uh, of how the sacrificial system was intended to be. And so God rebukes them for that uh, and then carries a warning to the priests in chapter two, where they're called to take this seriously, this rebuke and honor God by repenting. Uh, And then wraps that portion up of challenging the priests and God's people to honor him, to worship him, to return to the the standard of expectation in animal sacrifice, which is their method of worship in that time. Uh, and then we find in chapter two that there's going to be this shift where, and this is what Evan alluded to earlier, I think, um, where Malachi rebukes Judah's marital unfaithfulness, in essence, where they're divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. That's the tension um, where they were in essence married to, in essence, Israelites. They were married to, to, to God's people, but then they divorced them to marry pagan women. Um, and, and they're rebuked for it. And they're told, don't, don't divorce your wives. And that I think is the, the one anomaly I would give. And I don't remember the exact context of Ezra, uh, where he's, he's telling them to divorce their, but he's really about the pagan wives. He's saying, don't intermarry. That was the issue in Ezra. Uh, and in this pa- passage in Malachi, same concept, can't same tension is, Stop intermarrying, stop divorcing your current wives so you can go marry pagan wives. And that's what's kind of going on there. 
Then chapter two ends with these words in, chapter, in verse 17, uh, which even then sets up chapter thir- three, not 13. 217 says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And I remember highlighting this in my Bible. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a heavy statement. <laughs> you have wearied the Lord with your words. It's like God's just like this guy again. Come on. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing you speak. And it says, and it says yet you ask. And, I, and again, this is kind of that, that back and forth that uh, Malachi, the, t- the, the structure of Malachi is, you have done this. But then I know you're going to ask this, and then I'm going to answer how. Uh, and so it says, "Yeah, you ask how have we wearied him." And when you, and then the response is, "When you say everyone who does what is evil is good and is good in the Lord's sight, and He is the light of them, or else where is God's justice?" And so there's this weird, there's this incredible moment where, as I read it, I was like, "Oh my, my goodness!" Like wearying the Lord with our words is so heavy and so harsh. Um, but it is through everyone who does. Evil is good in the Lord's sight. Well, yeah, they're good. Everything's okay. Like they're good people. They're just doing bad things. Whatever, it's okay. Or uh, and and even the promise that like, God's delighted in them. Uh, or even the question that follows sometimes with that, or it stands alone, is like, well, where's God's justice then? Um, and I I can't think of a better a better verse that could relate to today's society and culture than this one specifically. Um, but I, I'm sure there are better ones, but as I'm reading through this this plan, that was kind of what stood out to me. Um, so we get this this lament, this rebuke from God about the weird way that the Israelites are wearying God. Chapter three continues this judgment uh, and this, this declaration where God in essence through Malachi is saying, purify yourselves. Um, purify his people. Um, and so that way, and, and it ends with this hopeful picture of, in this section, it ends with this hopeful picture of that the sacrifice will be accepted and pleasing again. Uh, but it is this call to repentance. It is this call to remember uh, and to return to the Lord and honor him. And as they return to him, then their sacrifices of worship will be accepted and pleasing. Uh, and then we get into one of the most probably, I would suggest is probably one of the most used passages in modern times in the book of Malachi. Um, where it is often it is referred to, and it calls it talks about tithes and offerings, uh, and the whole idea is they have been accused of robbing God. Um, and I'm just going to read it because I think it is it is important to understand, and it is something that is carry that can carry into today a bit. Uh, but it says this starting in verse seven says, "Since the days of your father, you have turned from my statutes; you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you," says the Lord of Armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? And then. God says, will you, will a man rob God? You're robbing me. How do we rob you? You ask by not making the payments of the 10th and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation are still robbing me. Bring the full 10th into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Tr- test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke and dev- the devourer for you, so that it will not ruin the produce of your land, and your vine will, and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. And, I, and I, the reason why I read it is not because of the whole tithe and offering thing, but it's it's one of the few moments, and I can't remember of any other moment, that we hear God point blank say, test me. Um, and and it is something that God is very adamant about. Very, God is showing to His people to be very, very um, serious about is this idea of trust me and honor me with what you have. 
Um, even in the old, there's different verses that talk about like, it's God who gives the ability to create wealth and different things like that. But he's saying, you have robbed me. Like there's, there's, you are under a curse. You're not, your land is not producing the harvest that you think it should. It's not, it's not, it's spoiling faster. You're not as, the storehouses are not as full. You're, there's not an abundance like there once was because you're withholding from me a 10th of all of it. Uh, and so that is this very clear tension that God is continuing through Malachi, reminding his people, return back to me. And again, the, the con- context here is the uh, the excitement and passion from uh, Zechariah and Haggai has worn off and they've lived in the city of Jerusalem. They're beginning to populate it, but they're intermarrying. And so there's a lot of things that Malachi is drawing them back to uh, the 100% commitment to the covenant that God has established. And so chapter three is, is no different from that. Um, chapter three then ends with the conversation uh, about the harshness of words set against God. And it's this, again, this dialogue, like it's, it's, it's God asking a question, making a statement, asking the question that they're already thinking and then answering their question. Uh, but it just talks about the heart that the words that were set against God, um, and brings this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And then we get to chapter four, which foretells the coming day of the Lord, um, and then ends with a final warning. Uh, but it is, it's very clear about what the day of the Lord is going to look like. It's a very short portion of it, but it refers to uh, even something we re- remember reading in Daniel, we remember reading through some of the prophetic books, is this picture of the day of the Lord. Um, but then it ends with this warning in chapter four. It says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded at him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, the majority of people here would be able to remember Ezra and remember the reading of the entire book of, of Moses, the entire law. And so he's calling them back through Malachi. Remember what I gave Moses. Remember this. He says in verse five, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So the day of the Lord that he's referring to is not, not necessarily the, the punishment and the wrath and the exile because we're in the post-exile, but it's also referring to... Um, the the fall like the future in the New Testament. It's referring to the New Testament era, which is what we're going to be getting into next week. Uh, so I don't want to get too far ahead and, and allude to too much, but that's what it's referring to. And then it's this: I'm going to send you a prophet Elijah, uh, which we will know starting next week. Like it's going to be the John the Baptist. Uh, the, he's not Elijah, obviously, but um, before the terrible day the Lord comes, even alluding to the Messiah coming. And he says this in verse six to wrap up the book of Malachi. He says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And I love that picture of just part of what the work will be done is turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I think that's such an incredible promise to think about. Um, And even as we see the New Testament play out, even as we see the gospels that we jump into them next week, I think it's really a beautiful picture that you're going to see this incredible return and this incredible dynamic going on. Then we get to the final book of the Old Testament. And Evan, this this book had a little bit of controversy last week as far as being the last book of the Old Testament. I was I was I was surprised that Joel is listed last, but I guess after looking into it, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> like I don't I don't I I'm not sure if I think it's actually last. I think Malachi probably still is. But yeah. I don't know what it, like I did a bunch of research on um Jonah last year. And so with that, a bunch of it was saying that Jonah was a contemporary of like Hosea, Joel, Amos, um, that kind of group mm-hmm. of people. So I was kind of surprised to see it. But like now that I've now that I've looked into it a little bit more, uh, yeah, you know, I I get it. Yeah, I get I get the reasons why you'd put it here. Yeah. Well, and I told you when we were coming down to record the podcast, or even maybe this morning uh, after coffee, I was like after reading, after reading through the introduction of Joel, after reading, uh, you, it's 
it makes sense. Like I could totally see it fitting at this part of the history of Israel. Now, I, I would actually probably agree with you. I think Malachi fits better at the end of the Old Testament, but it but they both can kind of go hand in hand. So I actually don't have any heartburn about it. It is interesting because this is um, it is one of the most controversial books as far as timeline goes. There's not real clarity. We don't know a lot about Joel except his, his father's name. That's it. Um, and so like even from a scholarly point of view, I was seeing that the dating of the book has always been difficult because it ranges from like pre-monarchial all the way to post-exilic. I'm like, that's the biggest spread ever. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's just ridiculous. Um, but I do love that it, it's going to show us uh, God as a creator and a redeemer uh, of all the universe that, and he, that he's in complete control of nature, which I think is, which is true. And it's fun to see that. Um, Joel will make clear as we read through it, that the God of judgment is also God of mercy uh, who stands ready to redeem and restore when his people come to him in repentance. Um, and, and I love that. I mean, this is, this is the part of Joel where I'm like, I could totally see it alluding and being towards the end of the exile because coming out of the promise of the prophet of Malachi, and this is where I could, I could see it even being placed after the prophet Malachi is because even the foretelling and the foreshadowing of like the day of Pentecost and Joel, and I'll read this passage when we get to it, uh, but in Joel 2.28, like there's this beautiful tension uh, or beautiful promise of God's uh, provision and restoration and revival uh, of the, not just the land, but also the, the people himself. Um, so it is, it is a, it does fit in this time of the chronological reading plan. It isn't something that should have been, you know, weeks ago that we read through. Um, Cause I think the other, the other side was, it was like Daniel and Ezekiel, right? That was kind of in that same era or Jonah right. in that era. It's like probably could potentially fit better, but, um, but I, I could, I could, I could understand and get behind this. So, uh, so Joel one, uh, the chapter one is three chapters long. Uh, Joel chapter one deals with a, a declaration about a, a plague of locusts. Uh, and it starts off this way. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. That's all we know about Joel is his dad's name. Uh, it says, hear this, you elders, listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days uh, or in the days of your ancestors? And this is where I think it's also can be, I think that also helps reinforce that it, it could be towards the end after the post-exilic, in the post-exilic era, is that, has anything ever happened like this in the days of your ancestors? Now, God's people have gone through a whole lot. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff that they've gone through with exile, with Babylon, with with Egypt and the 10 plagues and all these different things. And, and even Joel says, has anything like this, what I'm about to say, ever happened? Um, so that's where I could see it also fitting at the end uh, of the Old Testament timeline. It says, tell your children about it and that your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, it's locust upon locust upon locust is going to destroy everything. It says, wake up, you drunkards. And I love the, this imagery here. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail. It also reminds me of James chapter 5, by the way. Weep and wail, you rich, foolish believers. Do it. Um, but it says, all you wail, all you wine drinkers, because the sweet wine for it has been taken from your youth. For a nation has divided, my, invaded my land powerful and without number its teeth are the teeth of a lion and has and it has the fangs of a lioness it has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig tree it has stripped off its bark and thrown it away its branches have turned white grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth mourning for the husband of her youth so it's just this incredible picture of the the, the punishment the the army the the locusts are coming to invade uh and this is not going to be a fun pretty moment um, chapter one ends with the day of the Lord declaration, starting with a woe because of that day. 
uh, in verse 15, which is never a good opening line uh, when it comes to the day of the Lord declaration. Uh, continue or chapter two continues the word of the delay, the the word the Lord, uh, uh, the day of the Lord, not the word of the lay. Uh, the day of the Lord continues this declaration and this uh, judgment, and it says these words in chapter two, verses one through two. It says, "Blow the horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain." Let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. Like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. Which again, speaks to me and shows the the, the validity of a post-exilic moment. Um, so I, again, it just reinforces what I've been processing and having read through Joel, I think, yeah, it could totally fit here because it's saying like never has seen in ages past or will ever see in generations to come again. Uh, chapter two continues in showing the day of the Lord. It's, it's shown by this invading Northern army. Uh, and then after this foretelling, we find a moment uh, where there's this call to repentance and renewal. Uh, God shows his mercy as his people repent and answer to the people's repentance by destroying the northern army. It doesn't stop there. Then it details in chapter 2 here the physical restoration of the land, and followed by what I've already alluded to is this powerful section of Scripture and the revival of God's people. It says this in 2.28 to 32. After this, which is referring to chronologically the restoration of the land, after this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in heavens and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for there will be an escape for those who, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors, uh, the Lord calls. And so it's this, it alludes, it foreshadows this day of Pentecost, which is what Peter alludes to in one of his sermons after the, the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And it also has allusions to the revelation in the, in the, end, of, in the end of the era, in the end of the time, the apocalyptic era, if you will. Uh, and so then we get chapter three, which ends the book and the Old Testament uh, with a detailing of the vengeance of the nations surrounding the people of God. And so there's a section where it's God's pouring out his judgment and his vengeance for um, against the nations that have oppressed and taken advantage of God's people. He's going to take vengeance on that. And then it has this, the last words of the book of Joel, chapter 3, verses 17 to 21 say this, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will never overrun it again. And that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. This is a literal thing. It's not a metaphor at all. It's going to literally flow with milk. And I'm just kidding. Uh, it says, all the streams of Judah will flow with water and a spring will issue from the Lord's house, watering the Valley of Acacias. Egypt will become desolate, Edom a desert, a wasteland, because of the vines done to the people of Judah and in the, in the, in whose land they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. I will pardon their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And that is where Joel ends. And it's this future, it's this promise of what's to come. It's this promise of God's blessing and care and provision that hinges on his uh, hinges on his people's repentance, his renewal of the land, his destruction of the Northern army, his pouring out his spirit, and then the blessing of God's people 
for the rest of history. Boom. And that's where it ends. That wraps up the Old Testament. Next week, the Gospels coming in hot. And then we'll hit you know, Acts and the Epistles and then Revelation. So what a good time. This will be fun. All right. Well, before we take off today, we do want to talk about what we learned today. For me, I think this week it comes down to kind of my misconceptions about the post-exilic period a little bit. I hmm. think I oftentimes tended to view it as it's just great and everything's great. <laughs> um, but really what separates the post-exilic period to the um, f- or from the monarchical, monarchical period of Israel. And sorry, when I mean those, I mean the post-exilic is after they've come back from being exiled mm-hmm. to Babylon and Persia. And then the monarchical is when they're living under the the kings, right? So during the monarchy, the people of Israel are constantly sinning. Uh, they're constantly turning away from the Lord. During the post-exilic period, they're coming back. And it's not that they're perfect. Like they get rebuked a lot. Yeah. Like when you read yeah. through Haggai, Zechariah, uh, Joel and Malachi. They're getting rebuked for a ton of different things, but the what what's, what separates them is that they repent. Yeah, and so the, it's not the the idea is not that God's expectation is sinless perfection. The idea is not that Israel really turned it around when they never sinned again. What they did was they turned it around when their sin was exposed to them. So we see in Nehemiah, what do we read? We read about the usurers. Um, and when I say usurer, I mean it's uh, someone who takes advantage of the poor, charging interest, all these different things. When the word they're confronted with their sin, they don't make excuses. They turn it around. Uh, When the people of Israel have the law read to them, they begin to weep because they've realized, wow, we haven't been doing what God has commanded us to do. And then in that moment, Nehemiah is able to kind of lift the the countenance of the people by saying, okay, this is a new new beginning. We're rejoicing. This day is holy unto the Lord. Um, So I think it's just a powerful reminder for us that we can beat ourselves up when we sin. And here's the thing. We all do. Yeah. Uh, it's not an excuse to say like, yeah, so who cares? Like go sin. But the, the point I'm making is that what should separate us as Christians is the fact that we repent, that we bring our sin before the Lord um, and that we don't have to feel condemned because of what we did because the people of Israel are not condemned, right? They move into a new period. And for us, it's kind of, it, it, it's almost a foreshadowing of the gospel for me. Yeah. When you see people kind of turning around that moment. And for us, it's a reminder that we are not condemned by our sin. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is a healthy thing, um, but it's also a reminder for us to to strive and live holy lives uh, in the example of Christ. So that's my that's my, a little longer application today, but that was that was my thought for today. Yeah, that's really good, man. Um, I, I as I was reading, I mean, this has been this has been a really fun reading of the Old Testament for me this year, um, and and it, I, I think it was. It was in Isaiah when I started looking ahead to the fulfillment of prophecy in the coming Messiah. And oftentimes I remember I caught myself reading and and just kind of, not in Isaiah, but like in, in times past reading through scripture and reading the Bible and and I'd read the prophets and it's, it wraps up whatever and I'm ready to move on. And Malachi was a good ending uh, to the 39 books of the Old Testament, um, but it I failed to to anticipate what was coming. Because uh, I knew Jesus was there, right? I knew the gospels, I knew all that value and all that that, high, that 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 expectation. But I think what has really kind of caught my eye, even especially this week as I'm reading through Malachi and Joel, is, is just the intentionality and the 
patience, the mercy of God to, to still work out his plan for the redemption of all mankind. That even in the exile, even in the rebellion, even in the, even when the post-exilic, when they come back and there's this excitement, anticipation, but then there's still this compromise and struggle and falling and through Malachi, like Malachi is not this great, most encouraging, hopeful book. Like it's this, this rebuke that's interlaced with God's grace and mercy. And then you get Joel, which I, I really do think Joel is a, a pretty profound and beautiful book about the coming promise and fulfillment of God's promise that we see in the gospels and in the book of Acts. Uh, and so I kind of found myself this, this week reading through these, highlighting the different passages in my Bible that allude to the anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise. Like I'm excited to get to the New Testament because it means I'm out of the Old Testament on one hand, but I think I'm more excited to get to the New Testament because I've now journeyed with God's people as best I can through this chronological reading plan. And so I, I say all of that, th- all of that to say, like, it just was profound to me and it's been humbling to me just to see the extent of God's mercy up to this point. And then we shift into like this, like we already kind of alluded to the top of our podcast, like this intertestamental period where there's silence, um, mm-hmm. uh, 400 years and not even silence, but it's this God is still, I, I feel like it's almost like this Esther type filter where God is still working and doing his work. We just don't know about it. We didn't know what God was doing in the book of Esther. We just saw what he was doing through with Mordecai and Esther and the faithfulness of the Jews in that era. But it is this, this incredible picture. And for me, it's, it draws a lot of anticipation for the next week as we're jumping into the gospels, even as, you know, total transparency, like I'm, I read about 10 days ahead because I want to be prepared for the podcast. So like even today, this morning in my reading plan, I was reading the book of Mark and reading the book of Luke and reading the book of John and Matthew, uh, and just getting the very beginning of the gospel. And it just, for me, it builds this, like, I can't wait. And so I think that's new for me this year. And I hope as we read, like we can catch that excitement and anticipation for the gospels have arrived. Like they're like the coming Messiah is here. Like there's something about like, I think that anticipation that I think is really important. And it's fun that I get to be a part of that. Even as I read the Bible now, how many ever years that that I've read through the Bible myself, but I think that's a lot of fun to be reminded of as we're wrapping up the book or the old Testament this year, this week is that tension and that beautiful anticipation of what's coming next. So hopefully that that's encouraging, but like that for me was like the biggest takeaway. No, I love it. Yeah. This, this reading plan has been a really fun exercise in being able to read the old Testament in a brand new way. And hopefully it, I mean, I'm not, hopefully it'll do the same thing with the new Testament where we get to kind of have a harmony of all the gospels and then actually reading the epistles as they're written. So be really fun. All right. Well, we did have a question come in, so we'll Hello. take a second to answer that. Okay, so it says, if Ezekiel was around at the time of Daniel, was he and the and the other Jews expected to bow down to idols that resulted in Rakshak and Benny being tossed <laughs> into the fiery furnace? If you don't know, that is a That's reference the best to thing ever. that is a reference to the Veggie Tales version of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Which I've and not Abednego. Seen. Yeah, you haven't seen that? No. Nope. Oh, classic. Veggie Tales came out after I was a kid. Sure, fair, you should introduce your kids to it though. It's a good time. No, I'm teaching Full House. Fair enough. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, or true. was, or sorry, the question continues, or was he safe because he was living in a different city? Uh, great question. This is something I wondered as a kid as well, because Daniel's like absent from this story. Yeah. Like, why did he, did he bow down? Like, what happened? Um, almost certainly he didn't bow down because 
I mean, we see him stand up for like in in oh totally like a chapter later he's or not, two chapters later he's thrown into the fire or not the fire first into the lion's den, uh, and so it, it is very much against the character of Daniel to have bowed down to this. So probably the easiest explanation is yes, he was living in a different city at the time. Um, when you read the account, it's not an empire-wide thing necessarily. It seems like it's the city of Babylon where the where the statue is. I can't remember. It might not be in Babylon. I, I should have written down where it was erected. But it, the, the area where the statue is erected, which I believe is very close to the capital. Um, and then governors and high-up people are brought in from other provinces. So we are told that the Jews as a whole – Many of them refuse to bow down. Uh, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are kind of the three that the, the Chaldeans bring up. Uh, it's also very reasonable to infer that a bunch of Jews did bow down and yeah. and, and, and worship the statue as well, because we know that it's not like it's, – it's not just Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are the Jews in the court of the king. There's a bunch. Uh, and so it, it seems like probably at least among the court – they're the only three that refused. Um, possibly among the population of Jews in the area, they're the only ones who refused. Uh, but Daniel most likely would have just been somewhere else when this yeah. is going down. And the Ezekiel is not in the capital. Uh, he is He's somewhat close. I think he's like 60, 70 miles away. Uh, but he probably was not a part of this either. So yeah. yeah, I guess kind of an easy answer. We're not told explicitly, so maybe it's not the answer answer, but that's prob- that's the inference I would make. The other implication would be that Daniel did bow and it's just not mentioned, which doesn't seem to jive yeah. with the character of Daniel as revealed in the book or even the, the nature of recording the history that yep. happened at that point. So that's kind of my thoughts. Yeah. And I was going to say, I was going to say roughly the same thing. And it's not even a question I ever thought about, but based upon understanding as much as I can with limited uh, exposure to the Babylonian empire, there are provinces where even where you have governors established and raised up. And so even if it was a, it was probably more restricted to a region or a province or things like that. So Daniel may not have been in there or Ezekiel either. So uh, that's what I would have said too. So there you go. Good question. question. Great question. All right. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.